Here we go again. It's Bob McCowan, it's John Shannon. It's the uh, Bob McCowan podcast on uh, on your favorite podcast channel. I don't even know if that's a correct phraseology. And on Sirius XM. And on Sirius XM channel one six seven. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's on some other channels too. How are I'm you right. today, Robert? I'm, I'm good, fine. And you? Why? Why do you ask? Excellent. Do I look? Do I look ill or something? No, you look fantastic. You know, steady. <laughs> um, well, the um, the situation with the Edmonton Oilers oh. continues. Not that they played badly last night against the Toronto Maple Leafs. I didn't think. Uh, they didn't get blown out. They were in no. the game. You could even make the argument that they had more than a few opportunities to win the game. Yep. But they wind up losing again. And mm-hmm. um, you know what they say, losing begets losing, as winning begets winning. Uh, there's going to come a time here when something is going to be done if these guys don't figure this out on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know McDavid didn't play last night. Um, no. And Dreisaitl played a hell of a game and got one of the two goals. But um, where are you on the Edmonton Oilers? How close are they to having to do something? Um, I, I, I think there's still some time. Uh, you know, I, I think the fact that they played it, they played hard last night, Bob. There's no question about it. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's funny when you say losing begets losing, uh, it appears that losing teams never get l- lucky breaks either. There's, there's, you know, the, you know, the bad break on the, on the, the first Maple Leaf goal that bounced off Mike, Mike Smith's skate and into the net. Um, you, 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 you just don't make luck when you're not playing well. Um, that said, um, I don't think there is any appetite right now to, to make a major change. But that doesn't mean it's not being put on uh, uh, off the back burner and onto the front burner if it continues for another two or three games. I think there's a, an awareness. Uh, I think they understand what the what has to happen. But I, I don't see it imminent. But that's on a th- that's on a Thursday. Uh, by a by a next Tuesday, imminent may be a different definition. In many of these kinds of situations, and we've seen them in the last few months, there is some sort of debate between, well, do you fire the coach or do you fire the GM or do you fire both? The Edmonton Oilers are not going to fire Ken Holland, are they? No. 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 And, and, and no. And, and I mean, I don't think there's an, I don't think they're firing Dave Tippett today either. Um, you know, but there's but, going to come a time where they're going to have to do something, and it may not it may not be able to improve this roster, um, but through trade, right, right. And, and again, it goes back to uh, I think we had this conversation a couple of days ago. Somebody says, "Well, fire so and so or trade so and so," and the question is, "Yeah, okay, but who replaces them, uh, and and who do we get back for them?" And and I don't. It's not a fair question to be one sided and just say he has to go. Um, you know, part, part of the, part of all of this goes back to the success that our pal Bruce has had in Vancouver is because they're in the division and, you know, fans look at what the Canucks have done since Bruce took over and they say, well, we want that too. We, we, we got to have that. And all of a sudden, if the Oilers had go, go eight, Oh, and one in their next nine games, the world is good again. And so that becomes the, the short sightedness and the myopic look at what happens to a team and general managers and presidents and owners shouldn't have that myopic look. Well, I mean, this team, I don't even know what their record is. They're around 500 now, aren't they? Uh, they're, they're two game games over. over, I think two, two games over, I think. Yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, but they're, if, they're you, if you look two at nine and two in their you, last. Yeah. If you look at what they did in the first month of the season, when yeah. they looked like the best team in the national hockey league, Mm-hmm. like the best team in the National Hockey League. Take that away and, or compare it with what they've done in the last month. It's shocking. Well, and, and the, the biggest issue, Bob, is, there, is, is their starts. They have, they have horrible starts. I mean, uh, if, uh, I've, I'm, I'm, the numbers may be off by a game or two, but they, if they played 34 games, the opposition has scored first 24 times, and it changes the whole philosophy changes the whole philosophy of, of what goes on. 
And so that's the problem is that they put themselves really in bad situations on a regular basis, emotionally, tactically. Uh, it, it really hurts them when the opposition has scored 24 times before they have in the 34 games that they've played. Well, they're certainly not running away with their division. Um, in fact, they're um, perilously close to um, being looked upon as being out of the playoffs. I think they're yeah. in a wild card right now, but it's you're right by the by a, a fingernail right now, man. Yeah, by a fingernail. Which, and I mean, it can turn around tonight or tomorrow or whenever they play next. But then again, it might not. Mm. And especially with this Edmonton team, of which we have expected much, and Edmonton fans have received perilously little in return. We keep waiting for the breakthrough, and I really thought it this year it was it was going to happen. And that they were going to when they were 16 and five, how, how, how could you, how could you think anything other than well, 16 and five with arguably, arguably, well, certainly two of the best, maybe the two best players in the national hockey league. That may be a stretch, but you know, I think dry is, is still underrated and we know McDavid is considered the best. So yeah, um, it's shocking. Uh, some basketball chatter. When we come back, Doug Smith, Michael Grange. A lot about the Raptors and maybe a little about the NBA in general when we come back after these messages. McCowan and uh, Shannon back with you. And as advertised, our two basketball junkies, Doug Smith, Michael Grange, uh, both with us. Uh, Smith recovering from um, a positive COVID test. Oh, my God. Although, although you haven't had much in the way of symptoms, a little sniffly nose, right? Yeah, one day. That was it. I've been fine since like Tuesday morning. But... You got to do the time because you got to do the time. So you're now in five days, right? Be five days Friday afternoon. So yeah, I'm, I'm basically, I don't know. I should be back on the beat on the scene Sunday afternoon, I think. And Grange, have you gone through this mess? Have you uh, tested positive at any point? No, I never have been lucky. I've been tested a lot. But, um, you know, Sportsnet's been great all last year when uh, I was getting tested constantly when I would do the broadcast at Scotiabank Arena, and then. Uh, the Raptors this year have been amazing. Every time you go to a game, uh, you do the rapid test and the PCR, and I keep waiting, <laughs> you know, one of these days. But uh, so far, uh, so good. Well, on that note, um, this team went through um, an epidemic. A um, Almost the entire team uh, wound up uh, testing positive at one point and it certainly set the franchise back because they have to go and get players who have no NBA experience and in some cases no NBA ability and uh, got their butts kicked but they've been healthy now more or less for the last week they played four games and won them all and Smitty uh, looked good in all of those games right yeah they look very they look very competitive every night and they're they seem to have found a mix that works. And, you know, they did go through an absolute epidemic of, of COVID, but it only cost them really two games. Mm-hmm. They lost in Cleveland and they lost at home to Philly. The other three were postponed, so they still get a chance to play them, two Chicago's in Orlando. So not, unlike last year where it absolutely decimated them and they went 1-13 in, in March, they, they, got, they got through this relatively unscathed and i think that's going to help them out in the long run i really do they look really good this past week uh grange your assessment in, in a generic sense of what you've seen the last four games just a lot more good players on the floor right <laughs> like it sounds so simple but um you know the 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 covet thing was one thing but i think when they played um Friday and I'm going to, they all run together, but, but uh, before this, these four games, they only played one game. They hadn't played one game with their top eight players available. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they'd only played one game without two of those top eight. I'm going by minutes played per game uh, without at least two of them out, Um, you know, and, you know, even with the COVID thing, it's funny, like, like they missed, all of their top guys right so you know what we're seeing is is just this is the first stretch where they've had you know if you go by contract value whatever you want to do it they're top people uh in the lineup and you know and that was always the mystery 
to this group is is we didn't there was no way to know how good they were because they hadn't played together and now we're seeing okay they might be okay i don't know what their ceiling is but i think they're they've got a pretty good floor i think they can be a pretty competitive team in the east doug how many times have you seen a team give up 77 points in the first half and still win by defense in the second half it was it was amazing they got 77 is their worst half of the season in the first half last night and then 34 in the second half which was their best mm. half of the season last night in Milwaukee. And, you know, Nick, it, it wasn't any kind of magical strategic plan. They just played harder and played better. And Nick said it after the game, but we weren't ready to play at the start. And they were ready to play the second half and played really well. Now the Bucs didn't have Giannis and they don't have Lopez and Portis was in foul trouble and it was a kind of a goofy night for them, but the Raptors still just played better. And that's the bottom line. There was no trickery to it. They just tried harder and played smarter and played better. Well, and Milwaukee did not play as well. I mean, they missed missed shots and uh, missed opportunities. They were horrendous. They were horrendous in the second half. And, and well, some of that, some of that horrendousness has to do with the way Toronto played them. I'll right? give you that. You yeah. know, there's there's a balance there. Like the Bucks made some incredibly tough shots in the first half, rolling up seventy seven, and they didn't make them in the second half. It's yeah. It's basketball. It's crap like that's going to happen basically every night. Not to those extremes, but that kind of stuff happens in the NBA every night. Michael, when you talk about uh, this team and, and the top eight, uh, what appears to me uh, in the last four particularly, maybe even in the last couple of games, is, is how Van Vliet has become the go-to guy. And, and there just seems to be something extra within his game. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's been great all year. He's been a rock. And I think what's happened in the last four games is, you know, he's able to get off the ball. And so it gives a lot more variety to the attack. I think when Fred's got the ball in his hands and he's forced to create, well, he's by far the best shooter on the team. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but his weakness is shooting from deep off the dribble, like relatively. That's not something he does really well. And but all of a sudden, if he can get off the ball and saw it down the stretch last night where Scotty Barnes is bringing the ball up, Pascal Siakam, uh, they can put the ball in the hands of other people, let them initiate. And then the ball finds him spotting up on the perimeter. And he's always been great doing that. He is on an absolute heater lately. I think he's something like 35 from 70 from three in his last four games or five games, whatever the number is. But on the season, he's the best catch and shoot three point shooter in the NBA. And uh, that's a weapon. And, you know, again, with more people um, available to carry that load and allow him to kind of float and relocate, it's, uh, it's added a considerable weapon to that roster. Well, let me throw a notion out at you guys since we got on the Van Bleet subject here, because I've thought about this for uh, quite a bit. How much of, I mean, how much better a player is he today than he was last year or the year before? Or is a lot of this a reflection of the inevitable comparison between him and Kyle Lowry, who was, of course, a great player, but also the darling of fans and media in the city? And Van Vliet operated essentially in his shadow and didn't get as many opportunities, obviously, offensively, because um, Lowry took a lot of those. But Lowry is now gone, and Van Vliet has merely continued to perform extraordinarily well, but now has more opportunities to score and do good things. Smitty, to you first. Yeah, like, like Mike said, he's the best shooter on the team, and it's you can't even see second place. That's how far ahead he is. He's that, he's that good comparatively to his teammates. Kyle cast a long shadow, no question about it. But I'll tell you, if you talk to players in the locker room, coaches, guys around the league, Van Vliet's been the leader of this team quietly for a very long time in a different way than Kyle. Kyle was a recalcitrant. He was a bit of a contrarian. Fred was a galvanizing guy. And I think he's become more comfortable in that because he doesn't have the shadow of a guy like Lowry next to him. But he's always been that. And the players have always felt him be that. And the coaches have as well. And I think he says he's born to it. I have no reason to doubt him because we've seen it the entirety of his time here. And he's become publicly what he was privately and on the court he doesn't have another point guard who's going to take 20 shots a night away from him 
Well, you know, you're talking about a character thing, and we hear a lot, you know, this is a guy who was um, undrafted. Um, did character play a role in the decision to give him the opportunity in Toronto? Has anybody asked um, any of the executives uh, about that? Was that was there an awareness of that when he was in college, Grange? Well, I think I think his intangibles have always been ten out of ten. Um, mm-hmm. You know, then that goes back to Doug's point. I, I did a big, big feature on Fred. I think in his second year in the, in the league, he was just beginning to break out, and it was amazing doing that story. And you'd talk to Kyle Lowry, and he would rely on Fred for. In fact, Kyle gave me a great quote. He says, "Listen, you know." When I was young in my career, I knew all the stuff that Fred did. I was just too crazy to be able to speak, to, to communicate it in a way that didn't get me in trouble. In other words, he didn't have the emotional IQ to avoid, you know, getting in scraps with coaches and, and the rest of it. And, and, you know, Kyle at that point was like admir- admiring Fred just in the second year for his ability to kind of get his message out without uh, kind of creating a ton of conflict for him or others. I remember Rex Kalamian, the assistant coach back then, uh, told me he was running defensive game plans past Fred, even when he was in a rookie. And, you know, part of that was, I think he didn't want to deal with Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> part of it was, uh, you know, just, just, you know, Fred's IQ was that advanced. But I think there's a reason. So I think that was all known. I think there was a great confidence internally that, that Fred was a culture piece you wanted to keep around. Um, I think there was some doubt. I know there was when he was a free agent, you know, as good as a year as he had last year, there was doubt in the league that he absent Kyle uh, on the floor could carry a team, lift a team. You know, he's, his limitations are, you know, kind of obvious, right. That's why he didn't get drafted in the first place. And, you know, so when free agency came, there weren't a ton of suitors. Like he got a nice number from the Raptors, but you know, on paper, you would have thought the Knicks would have taken a big run on him. You would have thought maybe, um, you know, a couple other teams in need of point guard help would have taken a run at him. And that didn't really, market didn't really materialize. Um, what's different this year is he's become a better player is really what your question is, uh, you know, is. And the two things that he is absolutely better at are finishing at the rim. He was very, a poor finisher uh, by NBA standards early in his career for the obvious reasons, right? Not a great jumper, not really big, doesn't have big hands or long arms. So it was, it's tough for him to get, get a ball on the rim or up to the backboard and onto the, in, and in the net. And he's uh, figured out how to improve on that. Like he, he just, just incrementally. And he, I think he's shooting 65% at the rim this year, which is a really respectable number. Um, and two, um, he's taken advantage of mid-range opportunities in a way that maybe he didn't so much with Kyle on the floor. So that's, that's been a kind of a coaching staff decision too, is, is, you know, rather than force your way into the paint or rather than settle for tough threes, you know, get into those soft spots at the elbows and, you know, that can be kind of late clock offense for us. And, and those two things have really, you've seen his numbers climb as a result. And, you know, his counting numbers, his advanced numbers, are absolutely uh, all-star quality right now. When you, when you, Michael, when you talk about limitations, what is there other than size? Isn't it just size? Well, you could be, I mean, him and like Kyle wasn't much bigger than him, right? Height, height wise. And certainly he's not a, a lengthy guy, <laughs> but he had one quality as an athlete that was exceptional. And, you know, he was just so powerful, like an absolute mm. bowling ball. He's probably about 225 pounds and, I t- I've told Kyle, and I believe it in my heart, if Kyle Lowry had ever played hockey, I think he'd be the best hockey player ever lived. Um, you know, when you think of the super, super, like really, really good hockey players, they just have that massive lower half, and they're just impossible to move. They're like bowling balls, right? And, you know, that's Kyle Lowry. He looks like an NFL running back and uh, like an old school one. Um, and But so that was Kyle's you know, what he had that, that he could move defenders as he drove to the lane. Yeah. Fred's, you know, he's a very athletic physical guy by human standards, but not by NBA standards. So he doesn't have that bulk to move people, but you know, I think what he's done as a finisher and he's quicker than we think 
his dribble package is elite. Like his ability to kind of shift and change direction off the dribble, get that. And one and one thing he does really well is when he gets his shoulder past guys, I think he's way stronger than he probably looks. And he's able to kind of move his, he uses his neck and his shoulders to move people away, create some space. And I think what he's added is um, just a lot more um, finesse off. He gets the ball onto the backboard sooner and he got he gets a lot of english on it and he's able to actually get the ball into the into the into the basket um so you know it's john like it's it's just and the profile of the what's an athletic nba player is so off the charts <laughs> that when we say a guy well he's not that athletic or he's not this this, this it's you sound like you're talking about some kind of slug i mean the guy's a world-class athlete he's just not a world-class nba athlete Smitty, you've been quiet there. Your thoughts? Well, I, I, I just think Fred's a very smart basketball player, and I think that sets him apart. He knows, he knows his own play, his own abilities, his own limitations. He knows the abilities and limitations of his teammates, and he's able to communicate what he has to do and what the team has to do that always gives them the chance to win. I remember – you know, Mike talked about Rex and, and guys back in Kyle's rookie year. Dwayne Casey, the first guy who had him. I remember Case coming to me after summer league in 2016 and saying, we got this kid. He's like Kyle with no baggage. <laughs> and I don't think there's a more appropriate description than Fred Van Vliet than that. Hey, how much, uh, Doug, you talked about the relationship with Casey, but I, I notice, and, maybe, and I don't watch every second of every Raptor game, but I notice there's a lot, really a lot of positive dialogue between Nurse and Van Vliet. Um, what, what's that relationship? Oh, I, I think they absolutely respect each other's knowledge of the game. And that's the thing. And their, their creativity, their willingness to say, I'm wrong, let's try your way, mm-hmm. is a huge, it's a huge bonus for a coach-point guard relationship. Because you can't be dictatorial and you can't, disagree all the time you got to think okay maybe this doesn't work maybe i should try it your way nick is willing to do that with fred because he respects him fred's able to listen to nick because he respects him and they both seen it work like nick keeps bringing up the point game six of the 2019 finals in golden state that won the raptors their championship the fourth quarter was fred van vliet and pascal siakam with kyle lowry and Kawhi leonard basically as decoys and the fact that that relationship grew from there is pretty huge. And that's the respect level they have. They, they work great with each, with each other because they believe in each other. They've seen from each other the willingness to change and work. And, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a perfect matchup for this team in, this, in these circumstances. Um, those of us that watch games on television have heard um, the television people of late, especially espousing the merits of Van Vliet as an all-star. And look, we get the Homerism and the promotion stuff that television networks do. But is he? Is he at that level? Um, Is it possible that we have kind of taken him for granted? Even this run of the last five or six games where it's, you know, his point production at least has been extraordinary. And sometimes in, in not as many minutes as um, he usually plays. Is, is he that guy? Smitty, to you first. Oh, I think he's an all-star this year for sure. I don't think there's any debate. Um, Mike mentioned his advanced metrics and, and run-out numbers. They're, they are off the charts. They, are, they put him among the truly elite basketball players in the NBA. I'm talking Steph Curry, James Harden, Jokic. The guy, the guy has numbers that are like berserk. The way he affects winning is huge. I think the team not having great success early might have hurt him. I don't think the fans will vote him in. I think the fans are dopes. I think they'll go with James Harden and probably. Sure. Well, they'll go with DeMar for sure because they should, but they'll probably vote James Harden. I think Fred Van Vliet to his team is is a better all-star caliber player than James Harden is to his. I think the coaches will get it right. But there are so few, like the all-star balloting in the NBA is so screwed up. It's amazing. There's 12 guys on an all-star team but there's 15 guys on a regular season game team. Why they don't expand the rosters in the all-star is beyond me. And because of positional limitations, you have to have three front court guys in your first five and then three in your two, two of your back six. So 
he might get squeezed out positionally. But as an all-star, I, I, I think he should be an all-star starter. Raptors aren't getting much play south of the border right now either. I think that's that's the the, well, the other thing to consider. No, they're not. And you look, Trey Young puts up crazy numbers on a team that has a far worse record than the Raptors. James Harden's James Harden. DeRozan's going to be there. Darius Garland seems to be the flavor of the month in a pretty good team in Cleveland, but I don't know what he would be without Jared Allen and Evan Mobley. So mm-hmm. there's going to be competition for those spots, no question. But I, I have a vote. And today, Van Vliet, DeRozan are my two Eastern Conference backcourt starters. Grange, do you agree? Yeah, I have a vote as well. And yeah, I think I think uh <laughs> I think Fred definitely deserves one. Um as Doug pointed out, it probably will come down a little bit to logistics. Does he actually make the team? There's only X number of spots and you got Zach Levine with Chicago. I mean you can go through the list. But you know he's in when I say he's an all-star, he's an all-star. Does he does that make him an all-star? I don't know. I think I guarantee you he'll be an all NBA player, probably third team. Um, you know, especially if the Raptors have a good second half, but, um, like I said, you know, I think he's 21, six and six and shooting 40%. He's making nearly four threes a game. And really it's just him and Steph Curry that are doing that. And, you know, and I think the coaches will recognize how good a defender he is. And that's Mm -hmm. maybe something that, that, um, you know, the fans might not recognize, but he is a superb defender, not just good, but superb. And, uh, you know, hopefully they get on a little roll here and, and it'll be enough to get them in because let's face it, like, you know, it's an awesome story, <laughs> you know, like, sure it is. That's awesome why we're talking about story. it. Like he's, you know, he's already, you know, the highest paid undrafted player ever, or got the richest contract ever. He's going to be, I don't know if it, he'll be the first, but one of, I guess Ben Wallace is probably the other guy, but, but, uh, he'll be one of the very, very few ever undrafted players to make an all-star team. Um, you know, he's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a really, really cool thing and, and it's on merit. Like, I mean, the guy is balling. Well, let's, let's face it too. He he had a spectacular college career. Oh yeah. He he really did. I mean, and, and how, you know, on a team, you know, in in that mid majors uh, team that, uh, everybody said, well, look out for them. You know, that, that they were an, they were an interesting group to watch for those few years. But this is Fred's story, though, like even in college, right? Like, I mean, he was, you know, he was the reason he ended up Wichita was because they're the first place and one of the only places that recruited him. Right. And you talk about character. He had opportunities, you know, after his senior year of high school to open up his recruitment and go somewhere else. He chose not to. Um, he wasn't joining a powerhouse when he went to Wichita, Wichita State. And sure enough, you know, as a freshman, by the end of the year, he was starting on a team that went to the final four and like shocked everybody. Then the next season, yeah. 31 and 0 before mm-hmm. they lose, I think in the final eight. So, um, you know, that, that, that it's, it's again, like, I mean, you can't fault people who, you know, are trying to recruit NBA players or draft NBA players. When, when you look at, you know, the Russell Westbrooks of the world and LeBron James of the world. And like, you look at like the athleticism that's on the floor at all times, you know, it's, I, I can understand. And I've made the same mistake myself, myself regarding Fred, just, you look at it and you go, I don't know. I just don't know. Um, but I will never underestimate this guy again. Uh, I'm done with that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, I think the only thing that's going to hold him back from having, you know, the kind of career trajectory he's on right now is, you know, can he stay healthy? You know, he, he puts a lot of beating on his body. Um, he's on the floor a lot. Um, you know, uh, you know, so, you know, you always worry a little bit about injuries and things like that. But I think what we're seeing now is sustainable. Like, I mean, this is the player he is. It's who he's going to be. And, uh, you know, we hopefully, you know, from Raptors point of view, you got this guy for another six, eight, nine years of this. Uh, with Smith and Grange, we'll take the break and back with uh, more some uh, basketball talk on the program today. Back after these. Bob McCowan, John Shannon, Doug Smith, Michael Grange, all with us. Um, so now you get to a point. The Raptors are now, as we do this, uh, a game over 500. They're in the playoff picture in the Eastern Conference. It is easy to be optimistic more for fans than those of us, but when your team is winning and more likely to be overtly pessimistic when they're losing. But are we 
are you guys getting any kind of sense of how good this team can be? Because I think for the first however many, 35 games of this season, nobody seemed to want to step forward and say, um, this is what they can be. Everybody's had reserved judgment about them. Um, are, are you past that, Smitty? Oh, yeah. I I thought from the start of the season, this was a 41 to 46 win team. And, and I don't think, I think, any, if anything, they've gone, in my estimation, from now 43 to 48. They're really good because they have a lot of different pieces and they can beat you and play you a lot of different ways. They guard really well. This Siakam, Ananobi, Barnes front line is very intriguing to me. It's going to be going to be interesting this weekend because they get Gobert, Valanchunas, and then DeAndre Ayton. It's going to be interesting to see how they handle those three big guys in three straight home games. But they present a lot of issues at the other end that teams can't guard. So I think this is – I don't think this team can win the East, but I wouldn't put it past them playing for it. Grange? Well, it's, it's pretty fascinating, right? Because I think the real question – starting the season was out of, you know, could this group be anything more than, you know, a mid, a mid pack team in the East. And, 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 you know, I might've voted said, no, um, I'm not sure they're ready to be, you know, get into that top four right now. There's just a couple of gaps in their roster that they need to fix. But, you know, when you kind of stand back and, and we talk about Fred and Fred's, like I said, I think he, this is, this is Fred really, really good player, borderline all-star, maybe an all-star, um, you know, Siakam. Wow. There's been question marks about him going back for two, two and a half years. Certainly didn't, you know, didn't generate rate a ton of confidence in his first eight or 10 or 15 games back from shoulder surgery, but yeah. all of a sudden he's looking elite again, healthy. Healthy, he's healthy. He's looking engaged. He's, you know, the, I think he's found a really nice balance between trying, you know, I think he really struggled with, well, I'm the man. So this is how I got to play versus no, <laughs> you can just play, play the way you play and don't worry about all this additional burden. And all of a sudden you're seeing a really, you know, again, like an all borderline all-star type player, maybe an all-star. OG Ananobi has always to me been the most obvious sort of, fit on a, on a, on an elite team. Like he could start to me on any, any of the top teams in the league, just cause he's a superb elite three and D guy with still some upside to his game. And, you know, again, I don't know if that makes you an all-star, but he's, he's elite, very elite player for his role. And then Scotty Barnes is a guy like put a ceiling on him. I, I'm not going to do it. And so all of a sudden you're like, well, what do good teams in this league have, right? They have, three kind of all-star type guys, maybe four, you know, depending on how you cut it all and slice it up. And, and, and all of a sudden I think there's a lot more reason to believe in this group than, than I would have had, mm. you know, this time last summer or whenever the season started. Um, you know, so the question, the challenge becomes for management, I think, is they're going to have to find a way to augment it. And to Doug's point, you know, it's interesting to play small, but you got to have some size somewhere. And, you know, they got to find some depth somewhere as well. And those, those two things, I think, would take this team a long way. But the interesting thing about what you just said, you, got, you know, you, you can't play small all the time. They really don't play small. They just don't play big. Yeah. They you know, play they long. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They play long, right? <laughs> but yeah. but they, do, they do play small. Uh, you know, Ken Burch and Preston's and Chu are very interesting guys, but they're small. And I well, think small for middle guys in the middle, right? And, and to Mike's point, if you need to augment this group, I like to come off the bench with a seven footer <laughs> rather than the guy six nine. You know what I mean? Like, not to take away from what Bertrand or Chu would do, but those four inches matter. I would and say, I, I would say this, and to Doug's point, you're allowed in the NBA to have a really good mobile seven foot guy, it's not against <laughs> the rules, right? Yeah. So, you can do all the things the Raptors are trying to do and have you know, the equivalent of a DeAndre Ayton or, or, you know, you go on down the list and, and I guarantee you when we get to the final, you know, the, the conference semifinals, conference finals in the league, there's, there's going to be quality size on every one of those teams. And, and, you know, how do you add it? How do you compensate for not having it? That's, you know, not my pay grade, but you know, when you look at this group, 
you know, that that's, you know, I think you need depth of point guard and you need, uh, you need some punch in the middle better than what and, they have. And Boucher's not big enough? Boucher's not big enough no, or good no, enough? No, no, no. no, no Boucher no, should no. be like your eighth, ninth guy. Like the team yeah. to me, it has, it has three or four guys I can envision starting on a great team. And it has uh, three or four guys I can see being a really interesting kind of 10 through 12 on a pretty good team. But it's just sort of missing that sort of six, seven, eight that needs yeah. an upgrade. Hey, all the guys you've mentioned, there's not much love for Gary Trent Jr. And yet I, 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 you have to be impressed the way what he, how he's done. And if you had a choice in the end, Norman Powell or Trent Jr.? Well, Gary's younger, so maybe you go with him. Norm is pretty good. Gary's pretty good. I think you know, Trent is a far better and more willing defender than I ever thought he would be. Uh, he's really, really guarding well and getting deflections and running around and closing out on shooters. And he is a bucket getter. I, I do think he's better suited as the guy getting all the shots off the bench, but that's you know obviously not Nick Nurse's thoughts right now. But I also think he might be the piece that might land you a seven-footer because, you know, he does a lot of things, mm. but maybe you can find someone else can do those things as well, and he becomes the guy that's marketable. And you got to, as the Raptor fans know better than anybody, you got to give something up to get something back. And if you're looking at the piece you can take out of this team to get yourself that seven-footer or that, that, that big, big shooter, he might be the guy. Uh, you know, I, I'm perfectly fine with him on the team, but I think he might be the guy that brings you back the piece that really that you really really need. Well, he's he hasn't. My observation is he hasn't seen a shot he doesn't like and doesn't want to take himself, and in fact would love to create all the shots himself. Um, he is not exactly prone to distributing the basketball. Now that's selfishness, but is that his job? Well, let me ask the guys, is, uh, is that, does that bother you? Do you, do you agree with that assessment first of all? And does it bother you? Grange to you first. I think that's a fair observation. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think he's pathological about it. Right. Like, I mean, so, um, you know, but he does, you know, I think he's, he's probably in a bit of a learning and growing phase too, career wise. Like what can he do? What can he get away with? He certainly helped the Raptors out because there's a lot of possessions. They need somebody to do that. Um, I think in an ideal world, they would like him to, to relocate and spot up off the ball a lot more and uh, really become that kind of player. Um, to, I think I don't even use the word tension, but I think he wants to be a little bit more or different than that. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that all settles, but, but uh you know, I think the only problem with Gary Trent Jr. is his contract. Like, like, you know, a 22-year-old who can produce like he does is good. Why he was signed for three years, two years in an option, I'm not sure. I think it lends itself to Doug's point. It makes him a very uh, interesting trade candidate. But, um, you know, I think he's, I think he's fulfilling, I think he's probably exceeded expectations, I guess is a reasonable thing to say. Yeah, he's, like, he's not going to lead the NBA in assists. <laughs> he's not going to lead the Raptors in assists, but that's fine. He's not supposed to, and that's why I think maybe he is the guy like Terrence Ross in Orlando. He come off the bench and take all the shots, and that's your job. And mm. but I do think I, I'm going back to my point. If you were to put together a package of Gary Trent's money and Chris Boucher's money, you're going to get yourself a pretty good player. Yeah, throw a pick I, in I, there, maybe throw and... a pick in, yeah, Sweden somehow. I don't know who that player is. I, I would, I would. As I wrote, they should ex explore uh, the two guys in Indianapolis, Turner and Sabonis. They mm -hmm. should explore those two guys, and you could put a package together that would, I think, satisfy whatever Indy needs. And you also have Goran Dragic's $19 million sitting there on a pile waiting to be moved. So I think there are ways for the Raptors to do something in February if, to hasten the development. Messiah and Bobby know this is probably a two-year, three-year gig deal to build this group to championship, true championship contention. If you can hasten that by doing something this February instead of next June, then go ahead and do it. Well, we've been listening to this talk about an Indiana deal for the two guys that you mentioned, Turner Sabonis, for a long time now. Um, who are the other candidates? Who are the other teams that you would have to compete against? Because that's going to tell you what you have to give up. 
think uh, we're, I think Golden State will be. You got to keep an eye on them. Um, they're, you know, they're in win now mode, and and you know their glaring weakness is you saw it when they do. You see when they do play Phoenix, um, with if and when the Lakers are healthy, I think you'll see it there with Anthony Davis, um, and then let alone and if they get across and end up playing like the Milwaukee's of the world. Um, so I think they they need to assess whether they can waste the year of, you know, the primes of their key guys with, you know, the kind of, you know, they have a hole and, and uh, Miles Turner would look pretty good there. I think Sabonis might too, but, but I think Miles Turner is an easier, easier fit. Um, so that's one name I think you got to watch. Um, yeah, I would start I, with that. I think you got to look at Atlanta They're So they're underachieving so badly that they might want to do something big time to shake it up down mm-hmm. there. Uh, you know, they're, they're just, they've sort of fallen off the map as a, as a good team. I mean, you never discount the Knicks from doing something foolish or something big or wanting to do something big. And I know they got Randall, but other than that, I don't know what's, what's their big situation, uh, but I don't know what they can put together. I think the Raptors and Mazai and Bobby have uniquely put the roster together that they have lots of bits to move picks. They have all their picks. They have expiring contracts in Dragic and Boucher. They have Trent Jr., who was a uniquely skilled guy on a small, relatively small contract years-wise. Mm-hmm. They have little things that they can put a piece, a puzzle together in the one big deal. Whether it satisfies other teams, like we don't know what Indiana, what would they want? Do they want to yeah, get bad exactly. or do they want to stay okay? But they're good, they gotta do something because that, that team just doesn't work and hasn't worked for years. Who would you get if you're the Raptors? Who would you prefer, Turner or Sabonis? I'd like Turner because I think he's a better rim protector than Sabonis. Yeah, I would go with that. I mean, I mean, it's kind of funny around the league. Like Sabonis is, uh, you know, he puts up awesome yeah. numbers, two-time All-Star. You know, he's got great hair, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, <laughs> you know, there, there's something, uh, you know, but but certainly at Indiana, there hasn't been much impact on winning. Uh, and, you know, I think defensively, he just doesn't have that that presence. So, and I think, and, he, and he's also a guy, he needs the ball a lot to do what he does. And mm-hmm. he gets spacing issues because he's, he's not a guy who really lifts outside the three-point line, whereas Turner's plug and play. Like, he's a really good three-point shooter. He's a really good rim protector. He's a good a guy, you know, a good target in, in the role. So I think, and he's young and he's got years left on his deal. So I think he's a guy too. You could, you wouldn't feel so badly about, well, both, they're both pretty young. I think they're both just 20, 25, 26, just 26 I think. Yeah. Like yeah. Barely 26. And uh, they both have years on their deal. So I think that's one thing that's going to be interesting is, you know, from any team's point of view, but the Raptors point of view, you, you, you know, that's a deal you might throw in some assets in terms of draft because you know you have some confidence you can have them for you know three four or five years hey uh, uh, we're we're running short of time now we've been talking the raptors for 40 minutes it's uh, it's uh, it's easy to trip off the tongue but i want to ask you about a couple of other people in the nba uh guys have had made huge impacts uh greg popovich coached his 2000th game uh (laughs) this week uh, I have never met Greg Popovich. I have seen his press conferences. You guys have spoken to him. Doug, you first. What's this guy really like? What makes him tick? What makes him so successful? He is, I think the right phrase, he is wonderfully irascible. I just mm. like the guy. He, he just, he's just a good guy to have a conversation about with. He, you know, he doesn't suffer fools gladly, and I'm fine with that. He can be short and curt and but he's been doing it for 2000 games. So deal with it. Um, I think he's a really good coach. I think he reaches players at a very different cerebral level. We had Joshua Primo, the kid from uh, Massage in this week. And he said that he liked pop because he connects with them as something other than a, as a, as a basketball player, as a man, he has a genuine concern for a person's well-being being. DeMar speaks greatly and highly of him. Everybody's ever played for him basically does. There are a few who don't, but big, big, maybe that's on them. I think Pop is legendary, and I hope he coaches for another 10 years or as long as he wants because he's earned the right to put his imprint on young athletes for until he doesn't want to do it anymore. Did anything stand out for you, Michael? Um, 
I would echo just about all Doug says. I mean, there's a reason, you know, he can be in that job as long as he has. And just, it was funny, like, so Josh Primo, beautiful kid, right? 18 yeah. years old, youngest guy in the league. Couldn't be sweeter, really. Very, very bright kid. Speaks all these nice words about Pop. Goes out on the floor and Pop rips him. Kill him. Kill it just him. kills him. And, <laughs> and the reason you can get away with that is because players at some level know that he, first of all, cares about the person. And I think when you do that from a place of love is probably a bit strong, but from a, a true bond, then, you know, that's kind of the magic in coaching, right? Is, is mm. uh, you know, for that long, you can only scare them so long, right? Um, you know, I would say this, like, like it's, I know it's been entertaining for people to watch him kind of be rude and short and curt with the media. I've been on the wrong side. I've been on both sides. I've had him treat me really, really nicely. I've had him be an ass. And I've always wondered why the ass, right? Like why bother? But it's his thing. But I remember. Did you ask a stupid question? No, not really. No. I don't think so. I mean, I remember <laughs> specifically in Toronto one time I was, at, you know, he was just a, oh, he couldn't have been more miserable in a shoot around. Like it was, it was excruciating to be honest. And 10 seconds later, you know, he wandered over to the scorer's table and he had nothing to do. It's a shoot around. He's not paying attention. And I wanted to ask him something about Corey Joseph. He sat me down and we talked for 15 minutes and Canadian basketball, local restaurants, everything you want to know about Corey, like just couldn't have been a more charming guy. And I'm like, why? I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's him, man. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's, there's a lot more to like than not like, that's for sure. The other, got, the other I guy, got, I got one, I got one more Greg Popovich story. I got to tell this. Yeah. 2002 world championships, Indianapolis in the Western hotel. We're in the lobby bar. Me, Chris Sheridan, and Liz Robbins at that time for the LA New York Times. The whole team, Americans, are at the other end of the bar, carrying on. And Pop is a huge wine guy, huge wine guy. End of the night, we're all a little bit lit. Me and Chris and Liz are sitting there. Pop walks by with a full bottle of wine, slams on the table, goes, you guys can't afford this, so it's on me. And we drank, and it was the best wine I ever had. Yeah. But he had no reason <laughs> to do that, but it, that, that's a good pop story. Yeah. The other guy is, is, and it has to be quick, I guess, is uh, they retired uh, 41 last night in Dallas for Nowitzki. Uh, has anybody changed the game as much as Dirk in the last 20 years? Because he really did change the game, didn't he, Doug? Uh, Steph Curry did. Dirk, for big men, did what Steph yeah. Curry did for basketball. But, yeah. yeah, it was, and it was the single greatest trade in the history of basketball was Robert Tractor Trailer for Dirk Nowitzki. Yeah, because he was a Milwaukee draft, wasn't he? Yep, Donnie Yep. Yeah, just just a special player. And, um, you know, I think he really opened eyes regarding, you know, the potential for big men to spread the floor, the potential for Europeans to play. And, you know, I, I kind of quibble a little bit. I think the best international player of all time might be Pau Gasol, right? He, he kind of maybe doesn't get quite the same uh, recognition as Dirk, but, um, you know, just an awesome player. And, better than and, Tony and Parker or Manu Jalowi? Yeah, there's been a few, oh, yeah. <laughs> but but I, you just look at. But I think the, the really cool thing with Dirk too is is when it would have been really interesting to see if Nash had stayed in Dallas because you know people forget right before when before Nash went to the Suns and all of a sudden the Suns were the best offense in the NBA. Well, this Dallas was the best offense in the NBA when they were playing for Coach Nelson right. and, and Dirk, and that was a great combination. So, um, you know, just just remarkable, remarkable, remarkable career. Uh, guys, we'll let you go. Uh, Smitty, I, I was going to say feel better, but you don't feel that bad. So um, exactly. continue to feel good. How's that? All right. And Grange, we love the hat. You look beautiful. And uh, we thank you as well, as always. Uh, thanks, boys. Stay well. Happy New Year, guys. Same to you. See, you. see you down the road, fellas. Doug Smith, Michael Grange, back after these messages. And we're back. Uh, thanks to uh, Doug Smith, Michael Grange, for uh, joining us. It's McCowan and Shannon. Um, interestingly, this is maybe the first time we've talked about the Raptors this year. We didn't mention Scotty Barnes' name once, I don't think, during the whole conversation. I, I, and he's I, been kind I, of quiet the last while. Yeah. But I also I think that points to what Michael and Doug were talking about is having healthy bodies finally. And uh, Barnes became the focal point because he was the constant, wasn't he? I mean, he was the guy that was there every game. Um, and now that the Siakam's back and healthy and playing well, and Ananobi's doing that, and uh, I, I just, I mean, to me, it was it was easy to talk about Barnes because everybody was going through a revolving door to be in the lineup because of 
injury and, and COVID. Uh, not to bounce around, but at the beginning of the program, we, uh, we mentioned the Edmonton Oilers and at the other end of the, of the spectrum. And, and I admit to being guilty of this, you know, as a virtually a lifelong Torontonian, it is very easy to look at the Toronto Maple Leafs, at least for me, and be skeptical. Um, I don't know that I'll ever get to a situation where at any time before the Stanley Cup final, I would be excited, encouraged, optimistic about what's going to happen with the Toronto Maple Leafs. But I will say this, quietly, in my opinion, this Maple Leaf team is doing all the things that you would want them to do. I do not see a lot of weakness on this team. Do you? Uh, not regular season weakness. No. Um, I still think Well, they're not physical. They're right. not a very physical well, team. And, okay. And, there you go. Well, there you go, Bob. I'll give you that. Let's play, let's play up playoff hockey. Yep. You know, you know, you, you, we talked Raptors for most of the show and remember those three or four years where, you know, the Raptor Raptor season always went through Cleveland or somewhere else in there and they couldn't beat them. And it didn't matter if they had 57 wins or 58 wins. What did you do in the playoffs? Well, it's the same thing with the Maple Leafs. They could be the best team. They're going to be one of the top teams in this division, one of the top teams in the East. And it will not matter if they cannot play playoff hockey. And there is a difference in playoff hockey, whether we like it or not, there is a difference. And they have to play grittier. And Brendan knows that. He talked about it at the end of the season. Kyle knows that. They talked about it at the end of the season. Can they play gritty? When the Boston Bruins play gritty, that's going to be the question. Well, can they and or do they have the manpower that's capable of doing that um, without giving up the skill sets that have become um, synonymous with uh, their success this year, at least in terms of wins and losses? Well, right. we, got, we got lots of time to talk about that, but we have none, no time to talk about it today. For John Shannon and Bob McCowan, that's it for us. We'll see you tomorrow, we hope. Goodbye, everybody.